Hello, everyone. Since this is either a highlight, a standalone book, or the first episode in a series, I'm jumping in to remind you what the rules are for this podcast. First rule is no real people stories. That means that any details from our own lives are merely anecdotal. We do not read books about real people, and we are not reading historical fiction. The second rule is that we are basing our analyses off of how the author treats characters and what they put them through. We are not judging the accuracy of the trauma, the accuracy of any actual conditions that may be portrayed, nor the authenticity of a character's reaction to that trauma or that particular condition. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The hosts are not trained professionals, and their opinions come solely from personal experience. In this episode, we discuss fictional depictions of trauma and violence that may not be suitable for all audiences. Please take care of yourselves. Specific content warnings for each episode can be found in the show notes. Events in the media are discussed in approximate order of escalation. This episode contains spoilers. And I'm Robin, and welcome to Books That Burn, the book review podcast where we discuss fictional depictions of trauma. This episode on Books That Burn, we're discussing The Grace of Kings by Ken Liu. From the publisher, we have the book description, Wily Charming Kunigaru, a bandit, and stern, fearless Matazindu, the son of a deposed duke, seem like polar opposites. Yet, in the uprising against the Emperor, the two quickly become the best of friends after a series of adventurous fighting against vast, conscripted armies, silk-draped airships, and shape-shifting gods. Once the Emperor has been overthrown, however, they each find themselves the leader of separate factions, two sides with very different ideas about how the world should be run, and the meaning of justice. Our first topic is intimidation. Uh, so... There's this um, advisor to a child emperor. This is like a lot of factions and a lot of uh, people, because as the synopsis mentions, an an emperor gets overthrown. This particular one happens to be the child that is his heir. Um, Yeah, there's more intrigue that makes that a little bit twistier even to get to that bit. Um, But anyway, we've got a child emperor with... Uh, several advisors, one of whom has decided that he would like to be in charge and consolidate power rather than having people following the emperor. Because a man as ambitious as this feels stifled by the limitations of being the advisor to someone who still has a bedtime. Um, He doesn't like it. He's not happy about it. And he does a thing where he walks into a meeting with um I don't remember if it's the just the head or if it's the full animal I, think I it's know just it's the head. Some, at some point there's a full animal in a cell with like a label of like the other thing so there ends up being a full animal at some point but yeah it comes in with I think just the head of a deer and 
tells everyone it's a horse and uses whether or not they agreed with him to figure out which people in the room are his political enemies that he needs to eliminate over the next weeks or months. And once they notice that their fellows start dropping dead, based on what they said when he came into the room, the next time he does it, everybody agrees with him. Very quickly. Uh, it's, It's a stunning bit of intimidation that plays out in some, like, pretty fun ways as the book continues like references pop up to it um but yeah it is uh i believe we can call this a power move it's very cool (laughs) certainly a power (laughs) play power play yeah it's very cool uh narratively it's not great for the other people who were in that room apologies my cats appear to have had a disagreement (laughs) Yeah, well, they have opinions. Yeah, so uh, he had some stuff about this intimidation, which is just one of like a series of moves that he's making to try and get power. So um, pronunciation for this, um, I am assuming that this is intended to be the Chinese pronunciation of the spelling and not the question mark French word. Um, so, uh, the advisor is the Chatolanine, as best I can, uh, imitate that. Um, and he's, yeah. he is, he, he, he self-describes as a glorified babysitter, which I think is very funny because he has, he's one of the like top three most powerful people in the kingdom. Like top yeah. three or four. It's especially ironic when he's the one who arranges it to be a kid emperor. Yeah. Like yeah, he's like the he, one who did something to yeah. get the the person it was supposed to be out of the way. Like he he did some like lying and manipulation to make that happen. And so he's the one who put himself in this position. Actually, more so than usual. Speaking of that, I just want to really quick highlight. So he has a, call it a a mode of operandi for getting rid of political rivals, which is just intimidate them into suicide by poison or arrest and murder them. It's one of the two over and over and over. He even does it in the beginning of the book um, as a setup for putting that said kid emperor on the throne um he sends uh poison capsules and a faked letter and a faked seal to this kid's older brother that intimidates him into suicide via pill yeah i believe it's um a sibling by a different consort and so there's um right but it's yeah it's still his oh, younger sure, sibling. sure i just Mostly, like, why this person would believe the intimidation is because I think either his mother is gone or is not, like, a wife. There there was something where he would have reason to think that, basically a, a reason why, like, in terms of his backstory, why this intimidation could work so well and so quickly. Um, well, yeah, but- that and he faked the emperor's seal. <laughs> Oh, sure, sure. Right. That I mean, there's a really thing for the emperor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, hey, you know, I think you're against me. And 
I'm going to uh, kill you. It's like, well, I guess I'm going to fall on my sword yeah. um, because I, I, I don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. So like he keeps using this and actually there's like um, a thing where his kind of partner in crime in these machinations ends up like slowly oh. starting to work against him. Yeah. Um, because he doesn't like these tactics. So like yeah. it's oh yeah, it's it's just how he keeps trying to do things. Um Yeah, so as far as as far as a reader perspective on this, it's very bare bones, it's very matter of fact. It, I mean, to be to be fair, the the author's voice style of storytelling in this entire book is very like, okay, I'm telling you the events that are happening. I'm not forcing you in them it's it's third person most of the time it's you know it's it's very one layer kind of removed um mm-hmm. but also as a reader you're kind of going through and and having just several several murders right in a row with you know incredibly personal motivations we get descriptions of some people who uh try to to bargain until they die essentially we have descriptions of torture we have descriptions of of um uh, bones breaking and injuries not healing and you know it, it's as graphic as possible but it also has well not as possible it's it's graphic but it's also that one layer removed with author voice and and we kind of gloss over other deaths you don't get as much as you as you could yeah i would say it is um specific where it needs to be yes i think is the way i would put it yeah, so, and like it, it also paints a really good picture of um, certain characters that we really only see as they die. You get a really good, like, solid feel for them as people. Oh, as people, mm-hmm. sorry, I'm sorry, my voice faded away there. My cat knocked my microphone away from my face. Look, you don't need that with her tail. Why would you need that for a podcast? Yeah, there's right? no good reason. Tis my job to feed her two hours early and pet her, and for that, I don't need to talk. Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think in terms of like the style, especially with um, when we get into sexism as a topic, the narration, um, generally speaking, doesn't apply a judgment in the moment to whatever the characters have decided to do. Yes, like you'll get their thoughts about it, but like. Um, yeah, definitely, especially when we get into sexism, like there, and I'll mm-hmm. try to debate whether to just save this thought for there. <sighs> There's characters who have wildly different, even, okay, just in the intimidation, these two people who start out working together and then end up kind of at odds, um, which happens a lot in this book. Uh, these two advisors are high up people um, with the child king, child emperor. They, the narration like sinks very fully into their perspective and exactly how they go about thinking about things and understanding what's happening so that like, regardless of whether you agree that what this person is doing is a good idea, like you under like stand, like you understand, like you get his, you can follow their thought process pretty well. You get his disdain, this utter disdain for having to be in charge of this kid 
where he's like, all right, I'm doing everything, and they're calling him the emperor. I'm slowly going to peel away his power until there's nothing left. And then um, his conspirator uh, realizing, oh, no, I have yoked myself to someone who isn't content with the, like, getting the things done and not having, like, anyone be personally mad at you when bad stuff happens like it feels like they've gotten into like a pretty good gig especially when the person they're under isn't going to say hey why didn't you do what i wanted you to do because he's a kid and well he's he's a kid he's being manipulated he didn't give the orders in the first place like it's a whole thing he's like i mean there are like you know depictions of child rulers where they're like super capricious and the adults just kind of like ignore uh, what they said because it doesn't make any sense or they do it and it doesn't make any sense this isn't one of those like the kid just like he's content to like play like he's got a routine like you know like we can't disturb him like he's sleeping or whatever like <laughs> one of the advisors is taking care of him like he's a kid who's going to grow into a bunch of responsibility and the other one is just using him to increase his own power and just the contrast between these two characters just gets like starker and starker um, as the book continues. So from a from the murder, the murders committed. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else we want to touch on before we move on to the next? Uh, I don't. I mean. I don't think so specifically. We're going to talk about other murders. Like, there's a lot of murder in this book. Right. But the, this mo- set was, specifically. No, no. Because they're mostly... Okay, the one thing I will say is it's mostly like, and then he killed a bunch of people and then did the thing with the head again a week or however long it was later. Like, it... it um These particular killings aren't given a lot of specific attention um this is true so much so that i didn't totally realize that he had killed the people who disagreed until i was on my (laughs) second read of the book like i missed that that's how fast it is because there's like this really interesting scene and then oh by the way he killed the people who didn't agree with him and then he did the thing again and now mysteriously they all agreed with him for some reason. <laughs> like the book, the book doesn't think him is mysterious. Sorry. Um, but it's just like, oh wow, good. They all they all agreed this time. I don't have to kill anybody. Um, so it's it's really matter of fact. It because this stuff is from like I was saying, it sinks into each narrator's perspective. And this scene is from his perspective. Right. He does not care about their lives. He, except he for the one, care. except for the the um, leader of the armies, it then. Flips oh to yeah, him. yeah. He did care about the the two people he manipulated into suicide. He did care a bit about that. Right. Well, but I'm, the I'm people... saying no. It flips to the general's perspective as he is being oh. tortured and an attempted confession wrung out of him. It flips to. Oh, I forgot about that scene. My goodness. Yeah, right. that, that's a whole thing because he is the yeah, only yeah. person documented in the book, at least, who, <laughs> you know, unreliable narrator. Under well, torture. Unreliable narrator. Under torture keeps insisting that yeah. it was a deer because, it, like, it has antlers and 
Yeah. Yeah, and I and he relents after a lot of duress um mm-hmm. and a couple weeks, days, weeks, I think. It's yeah. I don't remember if it said a specific time. It didn't Yeah, it yeah, it, it implies that it's taking several sessions to break him. Um yeah. but it's um but he he's the only one who even like really tries to hold out. And there there I love the fake out confession attempts where oh, he yeah. sends like fake guards to try to ask him whether or not he committed treason and he's like no you could save me and the guy comes up like oh this was a trap <laughs> well i guess we need to hurt you some more yeah yeah that was oh my god i forgot that that was in connection with this guy yeah that's this that's this thing it's a different section of the book from the initial deer scene i true think. yes it's like the next chapter yeah it's a little bit later but yeah you're right yeah the whole like yeah there's a fake out confession um where he <laughs> that's like so tri- smart on the on like, the part oh, of have you oh no you seem like you're injured have you been tortured <laughs> yes yes i've been tortured well clearly not enough <laughs> and then yeah so then for those who haven't read the book he then you know tells the next time he's questioned he says no 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 i totally definitely haven't been tortured um my arms are they're just broken like this i'm not hurt uh (laughs) i I can't write with my hands but that's fine fine. that's normal for me yeah oh my favorite part about that actually is how this is the only death that the we even get a a perspective on the emperor even noticing and he's so sad he's like oh how could he betray me like this i'm so i'm heartbroken like but he doesn't question it at all yeah. it's just oh okay well i guess he was a traitor moving on yeah this is the emperor before he dies right no this or is no, the child no, this is the kid yeah, this is the child this is the kid okay it's no he's just he's so sad yeah, that yeah. how could how could the leader of his armies do this to him like yeah th- there's like a paragraph long of him just being upset <laughs> uh, on to sexism On to our discussion of sexism. Okay, so one of my favorite things about how this is handled, which I know is a great way to to open any of our topics, uh, <laughs> is that something I mentioned in our in our first topic was how completely the narration sinks into the mindset of each character in the sections that are from their perspective, and since most of the point of view characters are at least trying not to be sexist, not necessarily always succeeding, depending on who they are, but most of them are like trying not to be. And if they were asked if they were sexist, they would either say no or not like that they'd have to say yes. Mana Zindu uh, is like, no, women shouldn't be doing that. (laughs) Uh, They shouldn't be doing that. I don't want them to do that. I'm going to ignore half of the populace I have available to me and just have men do stuff because it is from the gods that this is supposed to be this way. And then you've got people like Gia who are like, well, given the ways in which the world is sexist, I can use it to my advantage in these particular different ways. And then there's people like Kunigaru who are like, oh, 
you're right. I completely wasn't thinking of that because the underlying sexist assumptions that I had, while I didn't intend them, were making me not realize that this was a solution to my problem. And then, and, he, and then he also turns around and tries to force per, an actual perspective on other people, including Mata. Yes. Which is and, very good follow-up. Yes. But it, it's interesting because, like, Cooney, he's not necessarily, like, he often has to have pointed out to him that yeah. he was being sexist and not realizing it. And I don't know, I think he genuinely would like to not be sexist and not have yeah. this be part of who he is. But it's also not like a thing he's extremely devoted to. So like he keeps having it pointed out. Which arguably is pretty realistic. This... <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. I'm no, no, no. I just I I just I like how he I I like that it's portrayed this way because this is a very, very common way for someone who is not affected mm -hmm. by a particular form of bigotry to inter who is not directly the target of a particular form of bigotry to interact with it while they're trying to do better. That's like a super, super common thing. And I really like how realistically and naturally this is how he is, and this is how he interacts with this thing. And how, and from a character-making perspective, I like how unabashedly Mata's like, nah, I'm gonna fly in the <laughs> sky, I'm gonna hit people with my sword, and we're gonna win this thing, and women uh, can't And it's because I'm a man, do this. and not because I'm the only person literally in the story who can do it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Actually, can I just point out <laughs> there's a beautiful symmetry in Mata's sexism and also mm -hmm. he's the one who falls prey to the character who employs the sexism as a weapon. Yep. Beautiful. No notes. 10 out of 10. Yes. It's, it's great. And then, you know, because of sexism, that character is in that position because she's being manipulated and placed in this awkward, awkward spot. She's being placed in a spot where she can either, where she can, she has to do something that's definitely going to get her killed. Like, yeah. And the person manipulating her wants her to take Mata down with her. Um, yeah, but I just yeah. think I just think there's that there's a very good pairing there. Oh, it's sure, very well done. Yeah, yeah. So, because also it means that it it is realistic that this that this outside party that we don't really know much about could very easily know that Mata would be a good target for yeah. this kind of manipulation. Yeah, because of how easy it is to know that Mata Zindu, I think even for the standards of his day, yeah, is, is pretty in-your-face sexist, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe and not overtly for the standards of the day. I if you think about the way that the people that he interacts, that mass in his army also reacts, there is a, there is a common theme of women weak, haha, funny. I was going to say humor. he's middle of the road, maybe, but overt. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's good. Yeah. 
Like he, he's not the most sexist person. He's just he's just loud. <laughs> yeah. About he, it he, and in general. <laughs> he's loud about it and generally and he doesn't think there's any reason to be ashamed of that yeah. being a thing. Um I, I do want to point out that I really like the way that sexism is handled in this book. Mhm. Because it exists. However, the only times that we really like have it there is when it is either a teachable moment about it being bad, so don't do that, or when it is a setup for something like the aforementioned sexist character falls prey to the person who uses that as a weapon. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. there's no instance, literally none, at least, unless there's something really quick at the end of the book, there's no instance that I have can recall where sexism is just a thing that is portrayed as positive no definitely not and not only that in the quarter of the book you haven't gotten to yet um spoiler alert i i have intentionally read this carefully and reread and double checked and made notes and i posted on our tumblr you can see all of my little bookmarks for things (laughs) like so yeah in in the bit you haven't gotten to yet there's yet another character who uses the way who is trying to fight against um misogyny and how women are underestimated yeah and i think when you get to that last bit you'll really like it but you know i i I do concur there isn't a character where the book seems to agree that sexism is totally awesome and cool and and yeah and and i want to just like follow up with that like there's also no there's literally none instance of an actual woman being intentionally harmed. Like I say intentionally, not systemically, but intentionally on screen harmed because of the sexist ideals does not even happen. There's no, there's, there's no, Oh, we're targeting her first because she's weak. There's no, Oh no, I fell prey because I'm a woman, but nothing literally nothing there's no instances of people talking about things that happened to them in the past there's no on-screen rape there's the soldiers raped the people and when they conquer a village or go through and harm a village Mm -hmm. but that that's it that's all you get so and so it's just it i just think it's it's handled really well and it's handled in a way that literally at no point is it in your face or like directed at you when you're reading it which is great. And and also the third thing I have to say with that um, is that it's not over the top. <laughs> At no point is it cartoony. Now, in general, mm-hmm. there's really no like cartoony stereotypes of people in this book at all. Like that's just not a thing. But also I have read books and have seen movies and have seen characters written where everything else is grounded and great and it makes sense and it it you can follow it and people feel real and then you just get like the feminine cartoony no nothing substance character who's just kind of there um that does not happen in this book at all either by the portrayal of people being sexist or the people who would be impacted just doesn't happen yeah it Everyone gets to pretty roundedly, um, well-rounded, like, be 
their character. And sometimes sexism is part of that character. Yeah. But there's people in the moment, even when it's Mata Zinja's perspective, there's people in the moment being like, hey, like, hey, you know, you know, women are like real people and we probably shouldn't ignore them. And he's like, balderdash. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but but not in an over the top way. He just kind of goes. But my identity. (laughs) Well, and also he's got the whole like, um, he believes a lot of things are ordained by the gods. Yes, that too. And, and the thing is that, like, there's gods. <laughs> my masculinity, my religion. Talking, making bets. Like, this is this is not, like, this is a world where canonically the gods have taken sides in this conflict mm-hmm. and are... They care very much about the outcome, and so, like, it's it's absolutely a setting where he's not wrong to say that maybe some of the gods want it to be a particular way, but also part of how the narrative treats it is that the particular people that he's quoting, he's quoting philosophers mm-hmm. from a while ago, Confiji yeah. is one of the big ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love that. A lot of I love the presentation things. of Mata says, but the gods are sexist, and the narrative goes, that's not an excuse. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the, the, the gods, I think, if I recall correctly, seemed pretty evenly split. Well, but they're also not rooting for and- men. Right. Yeah. Right. The the gender presentation implications are pretty neutral and also either either neutral or split. And yeah. also like they are not doing this thing. Yes. Yeah. Also, Gia is great. Gia's great. Um, I really it's there's more of it a bit later in the book where she starts um because, you know, the, the main focus of the book is Mata Zindu and Kunigaro. Mm-hmm. Their friendship and how it falls apart. Like, that. I mean, that's in the, the summary. Um, that's, that is the main focus of the narrative for this first book. And Gia starts to come more into her own as the book goes on. And as she starts trying to figure out what she wants... Um, within the constraints of her current situation and then um later on the series she starts to try and shift what those constraints are with various degrees of success yeah um i really really like gia especially how she continues on in the series and it's just ugh, it's so good if you're like ah oh, i didn't like that this book didn't have a whole lot of gia because she was really cool uh keep reading there's more there's more she's great but uh yeah i i like how as the book goes on she starts to build more of her own circle and she has a confidant who uh is a woman and in the context of um of uh of her culture and she doesn't like totally confide in her, 
but I think it matters that mm-hmm. it's it seems as though it matters that she has someone where she can discuss how she, what's happening because the ways in which she's socially constrained as a woman and not have to like explain it to this other person because when right. she talks to Cooney about it she has to explain it yeah. like here's what's happening and why even for stuff other than sexism like Cooney is savvy about a lot of stuff but Gia Co- Cooney is really understands- smart but Gia has certain areas of expertise that he does not inexperienced yeah he and he's like oh my goodness thank you for in the nick of time providing the exact bit of info that i needed wow it's so great i should talk to you more often and she's like you sure should <laughs> um, <laughs> and then there's like you know genuine reasons why that like there's bits where they're on different islands like there's legitimate reasons why they're not able to talk to each other a whole lot during large sections of the book. It's not like a comedic shoulda listened to his wife thing. It's not that at all. I don't want to give that impression. Right, um, right. But there are just like a couple of things where it's like, wow, dear, you're so smart. And she's like, sure I am. I wish the circumstances of this literal war would allow us to be in each other's company more often. Uh, that sure would be nice. Um... On to our third topic, which is slavery. Uh, if earlier I said it was murder, uh, just kidding. It's definitely uh, slavery. There's also some <laughs> threats of murder as part of the slavery. So <clears throat> very early on, one I say an inciting incident for large portions of the narrative uh, is that the emperor does not want to die. And in pursuit of not wanting to die, he has discovered, oops, in fact, I am mortal and I'm definitely going to die. <laughs> Better build some monuments real quick so that they think about me forever. Who's going to build the monuments? Convicts and other random people. And prisoners who and conscript- conscripted random townspeople and basically soldiers anybody. that I don't like anymore. Literally everybody. Yeah. Uh, well, Yes. Um, when we say literally everybody, it, it does appear to be limited to men. That didn't make it better. I'm, I'm not, I'm saying well, that to be precise, yeah, not the in any families, ways. The women and children are held as captives to keep the men working, essentially. So they're yeah. not really excluded. They're just not in the same position. They're just not in, in the, the quarry and building the structure. Um, But yeah, so one of the things, the kind of like inciting thing that gets Cooney, he he briefly spends a time as a prison guard, and he's escorting prisoners for one of these things. And while they're on the way, there's a, a group that isn't his group gets delayed by weather. And as part of this whole thing, if the guards don't get the prisoners to where they're supposed to be on time, as like a day by day thing, it's like first day, everybody, lo- the guards lose an ear. I don't remember if the prisoners do too, but like first day, people <laughs> yeah, losing ears. A second day of delay, they're dead. Third day of delay, they're dead. 
and their close family is dead fourth day like it just escalates until there hits a point where it's like if you're five days late don't show up just don't he's gonna kill your family anyway you can't do anything about it don't show up and die too and so (laughs) um there's these guards who defect and take the prisoners with them and become bandits and so with that um it is it is a punishment so onerous that i mean i'm just like gosh it's ineffective like i i hate that that's part of my reaction is just like this is not a good system this is this is a terrible system why did you think that this was going to work why did you think this was going to help in in the emperor who will be a god's defense uh it's one easy to follow through from an administrative perspective and two doesn't he doesn't value the lives of his citizens anyway and three monument (laughs) end of thought process (laughs) i mean they'll definitely talk about you for a long time (laughs) right because also here's the thing once you're in the level of like killing whole families and like i don't mean whole family in like the like nuclear family sense it's like you know several levels up several levels out like your cousins aunts uncles like parents grandparents like a lot of a lot of people are gonna die for one person being late and so i i don't know it just feels administratively like very badly thought through like you're if like five people are late, you might kill a, have to half to kill a whole village in order to <laughs> con, in order to carry out the threat, and it. But also, and, you know, good news for the emperor. That's a lot simpler than having to figure out family relations and do math. <laughs> you know what? Look, I'm just saying. That's, I'm just saying from his priorities, this makes actually a lot of sense. You know what? You're right. Uh, you're right. But also, oh, I'm not saying it's a good idea. I just think it's logically very sound, and it's just good writing. I, it's it's great writing. Um, Also, this is to some degree based on an actual period of Chinese history, and I don't know whether this particular element is a thing. No idea that actually happened. I have no idea. I don't even care. Like from from like a reading the book perspective, it fits the characters so well yeah. that I would totally believe it either way. I would believe it completely, regard whether it was like, oh no, that was like an actual thing, um, and it went about as badly <laughs> as it does here, or no, that's a, a thing made up for the the story. Like I, I would completely believe it in either direction. I just think that you start getting and and the narration is very aware of the problem that happens because when this when this happens this is one early instance in the book of oh no i've threatened the people who are supposed to enforce my rules right and you're relying on some of them to enforce the rules against the other half of them. Yeah. And so this is like a super early version of that. 
But later on, there is a character who takes this to the extreme and starts having layers and layers and layers of who watches The Watchmen. Oh my god, that is one of my favorite, like, three paragraphs. It's beautiful. At all. It's so funny. It's so great. Um, But yeah, so like, this is, this is earlier in the book, like, a step down that kind of a road made by a person emotionally and politically in a similar but not identical position. Um, And it's just, I just feel like this is a great book. Um, Anyway, so um, we've called this topic slavery because, one, this kind of um, uh, systematized convict labor is a form of slavery. Uh, Well, they also explicitly call them slaves. Like, this is not a thing they dance around. Yeah. Um, They just... They don't have any choice, and the the political bad move that he made was to um, threaten the guards to such a degree that they <laughs> felt they had more in common with their prisoners yeah. than with the person <laughs> over them. Yeah. Um, because if he hadn't threatened the guards, and if it were just if they were late, prisoners would be injured, I feel like the rebellion might not have happened. Yeah, probably. Or, or at the very least... Or it would have been a prisoner-only murder-the-guard rebellion. That's right, also just right, as right, possible. Exactly. I, I don't mean that they would have gone meekly, um, necessarily. But uh, it's just really well done. Yeah, that's my um, gushing about how great this part of the book is. Uh, what do you think? Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh- I I mean, I agree. Uh I think I think it's just it's a very multi-layered catastrophe that all stems from this one person who doesn't see other people as human and then correlates into it turns out actually we have four players who don't see other five six six players who don't see other people as human and just compound this issue. Well, one of them sees other people as humans, he just intentionally wants those people destroyed. It's complicated. Yeah, yeah, it this um there are people who are enemies without being dehumanized and then there are people who use dehumanization as part of their strategy. And then there's characters who just casually don't seem to behave as though consequences matter. Yeah. Yeah. But uh I I don't really have more points than you. I just agree. Yeah. Hey Nerf Herders, my name is Case Aiken, and for over two years I've hosted my show, Another Pass, where I sit down with interesting guests to talk about movies that we find fascinating but flawed. Good movies, bad movies, doesn't matter. We find ways that they could have been improved. So if you ever thought that a sequel dropped the ball by forgetting about a plotline, that an epic could have been saved by introducing the director to an editor, or that a comedy didn't work hard enough to have some substance behind the laughs, then check out Another Pass podcast at certainpov.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On to the wrap-up and ratings for The Grace of Kings. 
for our gratuity rating for intimidation slash murder, uh, it is moderate or severe. I think moderate. Yeah. It's almost not gratuitous at all, except for the one scene. Yeah, there's some associated torture, um, but even that, I don't think that's severe. Mm -hmm. uh, That particular instance of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think moderate. Yeah. I feel good about moderate. What about sexism? Mild? (laughs) As as I stated in the thing, the only times that we actually see it are it is are when it is being utilized by the person it would have affected or as a setup for a sexist character having that be turned against them or when it is being actively rebuffed um so and we don't see it actually harming anybody on screen okay given that i made it to the last quarter of the book there's some bits in the last quarter that i think bump it up to moderate okay there's an entire specific plot line that revolves around a character dealing with it. But even that is on the milder side of moderate. So your mileage may vary. Um, uh, but even, I know, it's hard to think through. No, even then, it's mostly a character using assumptions and working around them. Hmm. Interesting. It might be systemic, but mild. Okay. Grimoire, what if you didn't mess with that? (laughs) I filled a basket with things I don't want her to get to, and then I put it very high up, and she was like, oh, a challenge. For me. I thank you, I will. Um... All right. So, okay. Um, I was, okay. All right. Mild. No, you're right. I think the actual sexism might be mild, even in the thing I'm thinking of that you didn't get to. All right. We can go with mild. Okay. Uh, slavery. Moderate? Question mark. I don't think it's actually, the depiction of it is actually severe, and it's definitely more than mild. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's moderate. Um, it, it's it's bad enough to launch significant portions of the plot uh, with characters rebelling against it. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think moderate feels feels right for that. All right, integral, interchangeable, or irrelevant is the intimidation and murder. Uh, uh, okay. I think could I think actually maybe either I think it's interchangeable, mm-hmm. or may, or maybe even irrelevant considering plot things later. This character doesn't even really get to use that power on screen, so I think maybe irrelevant. I I know I'm agreeing with irrelevant because I feel like he didn't have to go so hard, <laughs> yeah, to get what he wanted for the action. Uh, I think the the sticking point would be how much it matters that he intimidated two people into removing themselves from play. Literally none in the end. Yeah. Yeah. It could have if he survived longer. Yeah. So. Yeah. Probably irrelevant. Yeah, you're right. 
Oh, wait, no, because he gets moved. Oh, yeah, that's early. I'm just remembering. Yeah. The end game related to him. Yeah. No, you're right. It's irrelevant to the overall plot. My goodness. That's unfortunate for him. <laughs> it really, it really is. He did all this work. Um, anyway, uh, yes, so irrelevant. <sighs> That's thanks for him. All right. Uh, sexism. Also irrelevant plot wise. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a, it is a factor but not in a way that's actually pushing the plot forward more in just like a world building and like character building way but but it's more of an explanation of character for us the audience not in a way that's like pushing plot yeah and even for the thing i'm thinking of in the last quarter i think it fits the way you just described it too yeah it is irrelevant it it matters but yeah but it matters but not in a plot way it matters any story building way all right uh for the slavery either interchangeable or integral like something Um, had to happen to make those conditions that bad and i'm hard pressed to think of something else in the same setup that would have substituted i think integral because there's enough pieces of it that add up to slavery that if you if you took away pieces of it either the whole thing falls apart or you haven't meaningfully differentiated it from that working as a label for what's happening. Mm, okay. Okay. Then yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I I do feel like it's integral. All right, was it treated with care? Uh, the intimidation and murder. Uh, um, either not enough or enough. <laughs> I think. Yeah, for that, I think I'm gonna say not enough. Um, partly because the the fake out's pretty brutal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Accurate. Yeah, so that's not enough. But in I mean it works for the story. It's just, you know, not trying to uh it's not gratuitous, but also it's still right. not quite enough care. Then sexism. I'm going to say I think yes. I I also like, think yes. Yeah, just yeah. Like, because to have taken any more care would be to either really remove it entirely or to make it so nebulous that your imagination is actually worse than the reality. Yeah, like, it's very clear about what's happening and when it affects a character, how and how they're thinking about it. Um, and also how the how the um, how some characters are sexist and for there's one where it's like a part of his personality um and it matters to the story and yeah just a whole bunch of things that show just so much care and intentionality and how that topic is handled well now we did just say that the sexism was irrelevant (laughs) i know what you mean by matters to the story but i just think it's funny it matters to the character development like you could have had like a different thing maybe but 
it didn't drive motivation. Oh, see, it didn't drive strategy. It drove tactics. That's how I think I'll put it. Um, in the moment, characters made little decisions, right, on the basis of this, right. But I don't think removing it would have changed the overall trajectory. No. Yeah, it just adds layers to our characters. Um, slavery enough. Not I'm gonna say en- I'm gonna say enough. Okay. Because it's like this is happening. These are the threats. This is what's going on. And here's what they decide to do about it. And and also like for this one, most of the like setup we get for it, we get people referencing that it is happening. We're not really seeing it on screen because our characters are throwing off the shackles as we watch them go through their lives. So, uh, yeah, I think it's enough. Then the moral directionality. That's very clear. Incredibly clear. Yeah. Like, for a book that has as many opinions on what should be done as this book has, the directionality is hyper clear. It is crystal clear. You could shine a pretty light through it and get a beautiful rainbow. Like, the author's voice in narrating what is happening tells you what they think of each person's actions it is so incredibly crystal clear and also like part of what keeps it from being tangled is that the characters um who start feeling that they've messed up and compromised their morality mm-hmm in several key ways. And so it's not like, ah, you know, a bunch of characters who just all think that they're right. No, no. it's like, uh, no, you we're not saying there was a better option, but <laughs> you you've done a thing that upsets your sense of yourself. Mm-hmm. And and but I mean, and even when a character is like totally full of themselves to the bitter end, yep. we yep. know that they are wrong from the way it is narrated. Yeah. Or in one case that they did the best thing they could with a really terrible situation. There was right. one of those. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's super clear. Yeah. Um, in a bunch of really cool ways. Then the point of view for the trauma and aftermath. So this uh has a bunch of different people's perspectives, and so it's kind of well, um I mean, but again, it's narrated. So we have their perspective, yeah. but we have layers of perspective. We have like, we have second person insight <laughs> into yes. people's thoughts. And so it's really interesting because pretty much for all three of these, and I'm just going to straight this, I'm just state this straight out. For all three of these, we get multiple points of view concurrently about what is happening. Trauma, aftermath, we just know what people are thinking generally speaking or at the very least what the outcome of their thought process is and mm-hmm. so like i really just think it's just i think it's just multiple perspectives and we can name particular people too but i think it is just multiple perspectives all the time because we are explicitly given insight into the people witnessing it as well as the perpetrator as well as the victims in every instance yeah not every instance in the book but for all three of these traumas the things that we talked about we have this perspective Definitely. 
All right. For the trope spotter, we have chronic backstabbing disorder. Uh, when a specific character, um, as TV Trips describes it, when a specific character constantly and successfully betrays their apparent allegiances only to move on to a new group and repeat the pattern. There's just, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of this. Yeah. From a bunch of different characters. Just the whole book has chronic backstabbing disorder. Um, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun to read. Uh, uh, without spoilers, my favorite instance of this is when a particular leader gets locked out of his city <laughs> when he just happens to go outside one day. It's so funny. They're just like, um, actually, we think you're going to lose. So bye. <laughs> yeah. What is your favorite non-traumatic thing about the book? I love a lot of this book. <laughs> uh, let me, you go first. Come back to me. Um, oh my gosh. Um, I, I really, really like uh, the polyamory. It's, I, I like it. Um, it is, it is complicated and not without stress, but it, it is, um, I, I really like how it's handled. I like the characters who are involved and, uh, it's fun. I like it. I enjoy it. What's yours? I really enjoy... There's a friendship between two main characters. I'm going to say a bunch of things. <laughs> I'm not compromising at all. Um, well, a little bit. I really like the friendship that develops between several of our main characters, both in pairs and as a group. I like the way... I actually really like the narrator. I really like the way it's narrated. Um, I like the perspective that we get on characters, but it also doesn't feel like the narrator is part of the story or taking sides they're they're passing judgment but they're not taking sides um i really like the setup for the gods in general i like the way that they're characterized and the way that they are inserted into the story i really like the trickster god i really like that the trickster god is not out here tricking people the trickster god is the god of chance and so he likes to take risks and he likes to push boundaries but he's not the only one involved <laughs> in chance and gambling. There is another god who has an opposite side of the coin. And one of them is all about taking calculated risks. And the other one is about leaping into the abyss. And I really enjoy that characterization. I like that this is another trickster god whose name starts with L. <laughs> that, that always entertains <laughs> me. And then in, across multiple cultures around the world, at least when you translate words that end up in our English vocabulary, whether they're direct written out words or whether they're actually translated they always end up starting with l or a lot of times start with l which and amuses me so so much yeah um it's translated I, or westernized yeah yeah some words are westernized and some words are just straight up that's the sound that it was and yeah i i love how many cultures that is true about um yeah i just i really enjoy all of those things also, weirdly uh, enough, this was uh -huh. this was a book that has some pretty like dynamic combat actions, but 
atypically, the fight scenes were not the thing that I enjoyed about this book. That's actually pretty rare. It is really hard to get a book where you are like go really hard into the combat and the weaponry and how it functions and have that not be my favorite thing if you do a good job. And they do a good job in this book. It just didn't end up coming out on top, which is weird for me. So that's cool. All right. So thank you for joining us on this episode of Books That Burn. And we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks for joining us. All music used in this podcast was created by Nicole as Heartbeat Art Co. and is used with permission. Our transcriptionist is Heather. You can find her on Twitter at MamaDragon20 or on TikTok at MamaDragons underscore Den. We're proud members of the Certain Point of View network of podcasts. Check out all the Certain POV shows at www.certainpov.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash books that burn. If you can't wait for the next episode and need even more book related content in your life, check out our book review blog reviews that burn subscribe to the fortnightly newsletter or follow us on the story graph you can contact us by email at books that burn at yahoo.com and find all our links contact info and social media on our card books that burn.carrd.co don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and remember some books burn you